Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Well, good morning. Good morning. And we've been uh, talking about the entire scope of the woke agenda because, of course, this is unfortunately Pride Month, which just means that we as Christians need to make sure that we are always uh, pushing back with truth, with the biblical worldview, and uh, with understanding what's going on in our country and our nation. And that includes what's going on in the economy. And yes, all of these things actually relate. And that's what I want to talk about with my first guest, who is uh, Peter St. Ange. He is an economist with Heritage, a fellow at the Mises Institute. And uh, he joins me now. And Peter, um, we had talked on, um, and we'll talk actually on my, on my uh, show this afternoon on the Jenna Ellis show on the podcast, but um, we had a great conversation yesterday about woke sanctions and how that's impacting uh, the United States economy and the value of the dollar globally. And um, how does this all factor in with, uh, with Pride Month and this kind of woke agenda? Yeah, it's really putting the entirety of American policy at, you know, the service of this LGBT agenda. Specifically, the Biden administration is now weaponizing uh, foreign trade, foreign relations, trying to pressure countries to essentially mimic uh, the administration's own LGBT policies. And, you know, they've been doing this for a couple months in Japan Uh, There's a big debate in Japan over LGBT questions. Uh, Japanese in general are much more conservative on these issues, uh, on these social issues than Americans are. And the American embassy, which or the ambassador who in theory speaks for Biden, uh, he's been sort of sticking his nose into domestic issues and really putting a lot of pressure on. And this looks a little bit like a protection racket, you know, given how dependent Japan is on American protection the sort of <laughs> unspoken threat here uh, is that the U.S. is not going to be as involved if China or North Korea get aggressive. Now, they've ramped that up even more against Uganda. Africa, of course, is very conservative on social issues across the board. Uh, and traditionally, you know, the U.S. attitude towards countries from you know, Saudi Arabia to, to, uh, to Africa had been live and let live. This administration is now... Uh, pushing hard for these countries to repeal any laws that they don't like regarding LGBT issues, and they are doing that by weaponizing the U.S. dollar. The risk there is that that backfires to our own economy. It gives China an enormous benefit, right? China is trying to corral dozens of countries to fight against the U.S., fight against the U.S. dollar, and this is really putting the U.S. in a bad situation with many countries now. And, and and that makes so much sense how the world is responding and kind of pushing back against this ridiculous policy from the United States that, I mean, we used to even question whether or not we should spread democracy, right? But now spreading our idea of the LGBT agenda and, you know, calling all of these things 
you know, hate laws and this goes against, mm-hmm. you know, our notion of of pride. That's ridiculous. And so where where does the Biden ad- administration think that they even have the authority to do this? Yeah, I think the trick here is that they have to do what the activists tell them to do. They are as afraid of the activists as anybody. If they put one foot wrong, if they misgender, you know, whatever the thought crime is, the activists will turn on them in a heartbeat. And so we're, we're sort of going down this crazy path in terms of things like, you know, foreign policy and economic policy because they are beholden to their activist base. Wow, which is just so... It, it's actually so disgusting, in my opinion, that it's that you can't just have your own policy and the Biden administration has to be beholden uh, to some of these activists, just like these woke corporations are beholden to exactly. the human rights campaign and you know some of these other uh, influences that are obviously unelected. I mean, nobody put them in office to tell uh, the Biden administration what to do. And I'm talking with uh, Peter St. Ange from the uh, Heritage Foundation. And this um, is now also impacting inflation as well. Yeah, there's the threat to inflation is that, you know, a lot of what's sustained the U.S. economy over really the past 80 years has been the fact that the U.S. dollar was the dominant currency in the world. And so we could print boatloads of green paper and then foreigners would give us all kinds of things for those (laughs) tokens. You know, they would give us toasters and copper mines and all kinds of cool stuff. This really sustained the American economy. What's happening now is that if you weaponize our foreign relations and our economic relations, if you weaponize the dollar for these kinds of, you know, honestly, uh, trivial issues, then you risk chasing foreigners out of the dollar. If that happens, then all of the trillions upon trillions of dollars that we've printed up over these past 80 years and shipped overseas – those come home. If those come home, there are probably more dollars overseas than there are in the United States. Right? Central banks hold them all over the world. Rich people, corporations, you know, Japanese banks uh, have trillions of dollars. If those come rushing home, then we get an enormous amount of inflation here, probably double-digit inflation for multiple years. They are playing with fire And, you know, China is very, very interested in accelerating that process because they know if they can chase the world off the U.S. dollar, if they can send hyperinflation running back into America, then we are going to fall off the world stage. Not not because we withdrew, but because we're not going to be able to handle it. We're not going to be able to sustain it. We'll have to take care of the crises that come up, the the financial collapses, the, the poverty that spreads from that. And so then China, Russia, these countries will have a free reign. So they are very interested in accelerating that process. The thing is, they almost don't need to. Biden is doing their own job for them. Going after, you know, the vast majority of countries in the world uh, believe things like that there are two genders. And, you know, if you start pushing countries on that, you are intentionally chasing them out. You are doing China's job for them. (laughs) Yeah, we're the only idiotic country that actually sits here and says, no, wait a minute, maybe there are 57 or 73. I don't, I don't even know how many New York has at this point of genders. I mean, this is just so ridiculously unbelievable. 
Uh, and I'm talking yeah. with Peter St. Ange, and you can follow him at Prof St. Ange on Twitter. And I'd really encourage everyone who's listening to follow him because he's also posts a lot of really great short videos and some other things. Um, but this is just so frustrating uh, to, to me as an American about what's going on in our economy on the world stage and how Biden is utterly failing the United States in so many ways. And is anyone from the Republican Party that's supposed to be the opposition, but maybe is just the uniparty in D.C. actually pushing back on this? Or are they just kind of blissfully unaware and just, you know, kind of caving on the debt ceiling issue and just saying, okay, you know, fine, we'll just go along with whatever Biden says? There are a lot of Republicans who are, you know, raising the issue and pushing back. Uh, the Freedom Caucus has been solid all the way uh, on this debt, you know, drama. The debt deal only passed the Senate with about one third of Republican votes. So most Republicans are aware there's a problem. They are pushing back. They are trying to fight against the Uniparty. But unfortunately, there are enough Republicans who are perfectly happy with the Uniparty that if you put them together with the Democrats, that's a ruling coalition. So. Those those holdouts, let's say a third of the Republican Party, they're essentially just as bad as Democrats. Even if they see the problem, they're not interested in standing up to it. They would rather just get their share of the crumbs of whatever activist and corporate donations go to the Uniparty. Which, and, and again, this is why we all call it the Washington Swamp, because it, when you have Absolutely. more interest in, yeah, in, in having donations and other um, other corporate interests and other things that are uh, dictating your policy and what you're doing instead of being faithful to actually represent your constituents, then there is a problem. And this is why there's so much nonsense that is the uniparty in Washington. And um, and that was you know one of the things that President Trump famously said that I think everyone agrees with is to drain the swamp. And speaking of the swamp in right. Washington, um, I also wanted to, um, in, in the last about five or six minutes we have with you, um, Peter St. Ange, is also talk about um, central bank digital currency as well, because um, this has been something mm -hmm. that the Biden administration um, has been pushing, and the president issued an executive order to explore the creation of a U.S. central bank digital currency, which would effectively convert the dollar um, into this kind of um, digital currency like a like Bitcoin, but it's it would be centralized, not decentralized. And so you wrote a right. really great piece in The Hill recently. And um, talk about the, the problem with that and uh, how that would be a threat as well to conservatives in particular. Yeah, a CBDC is really sort of a, a version of the dollar that's weaponized against all of us, against all Americans. So it would replace the dollar with basically this giant list of who owns what. And that list would live at the central bank, central bank digital currency. And they could go through that list. They could uh, figure out who you are. They could decide whether, you know, do they not like your speech? Uh, they could control your spending. They could force you to eat more vegetables or to eat the bugs. Uh, they could punish you for protesting. China already has the CBDC. They do all of this. Uh, they could even, you know, they could force you to spend money to stimulate the economy by the next election. That means your money, you would have to use it or lose it. You know, it might erode. Uh, they could force you to stay in a bank that's collapsing. I mean, it's really, it is a push-button central planner's dream that they could use for social control, social engineering, 
If you wanted to do reparations, you could just sit there and look at your big list of all the money of all the Americans, and you could just move things over. You could say, okay, everybody who has some demographic characteristic, I'm going to shift over a bunch of money because, you know, because, uh, because my activists tell me to. It's really an absolute disaster. And unfortunately, the UNA party loves it. Uh, voters absolutely hate it all over the world. Every time they poll on these monstrosities, uh, you know, like one in five people like it, uh, overwhelmingly, four in five voters hate this thing. They say, get rid of it. I don't want it. I don't want the government controlling me. But the Uniparty absolutely loves it because, of course, they want the control. They they see themselves as that central planner. They would absolutely love that. So what one of the things that we're trying to fight at Heritage is that there is this movement from Uniparty Republicans uh, who are pushing for a version of a CBDC that would be run through a bank or through some contractor like Ripple. And this, we think, is extremely dangerous because, of course, the Democrats will be on board with that. That's almost guaranteed to pass. That will shackle us in a CBDC, and it would have come from Republicans. Now, some of the people signing on this bill here, I think, just didn't understand the issue involved. So I want to be fair. There are some Freedom Caucus people on there who I absolutely believe are true defenders of liberty. They just didn't understand. They got talked into it. But that's why we're trying to raise the issue that this H.R. 1122 that's running around the Hill at the moment, it is a very dangerous bill. It would actually install a CBDC and it would do it by Republican hands. Wow. And this is the call to action that everyone listening, you should be calling your legislators on Capitol Hill and telling them to oppose this and also calling your state legislators because... Uh, what Governor DeSantis has done in my home state of Florida is uh, he called on the legislature to pass legislation, which they did to expressly prohibit the use of a federally adopted CBDC as uh, money or with any transactions within Florida's uniform commercial code. So states can still declare sovereignty and prohibit this. But um, mm-hmm. this is something that Republicans need to know on the federal level as well. So that was um, HB 1122 is what you said, Peter? Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay, fantastic. 1122. And um, you can find out more about that at Heritage. And uh, Peter St. Ange, really appreciate it. I so appreciate all the work that um, you do and and all of your colleagues do at the Heritage Foundation. So thank you so much um, for your insight today. You can follow Peter St. Ange at Prof St. Ange. It's P-R-O-F, like professor, S-T-O-N-G-E on Twitter. And again, would really encourage you to do that. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And uh, we've been talking about the impact of woke policies on uh, the United States, on our world economy, and how the Biden administration has just really been so derelict in all of uh, their duties and actually oath to the U.S. Constitution to defend and protect uh, we the people of the United States instead of bending over backwards toward a lot of these activists and uh, the the issues that are uh, instead of spreading democracy, which we should talk about instead of being uh, you know interventionalists and and and. Um, doing that type of policy across the world, we should also be talking about why are they spreading this LGBT agenda that 
most of Americans don't agree with anyway. And no one gave the Biden administration um, not only permission, but authority or power to do this. So there are a lot of questions um, surrounding this. And there are still a lot of questions as well about uh, what's going on in Ukraine and how the Uniparty is still uh, pushing the uh, the war in Ukraine. And there are so many Republicans that are still for funding Ukraine. And um, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, is planning on joining us momentarily. So hopefully uh, we will have him. But uh, he is actually, I think, the only GOP candidate on um, the Republican side that actually has a comprehensive uh, way and strategy that he has at least articulated fully to the American people about how to end the war in Ukraine. Um, if you listened to the Twitter space from RFK Jr., which I talked about uh, yesterday on the program, um, RFK Jr. also laid out a pretty comprehensive strategy for that, actually uh, suggested that he thought that that uh, war is and, and U.S. Uh, intervening is a bad idea and spoke at length about Ukraine. And I think that this is going to become one of the uh, key issues moving forward, and it should be, um, even though there are a lot of things that we all care about as voters, uh, we, de- we do need to know where on the uh, Republican side uh, the candidates stand on this issue. And of course, President Trump um, and and Governor DeSantis, you know, have been very open about uh, their responses and President Trump saying, you know, that he would end the war in Ukraine um, kind of on day one, um, but hasn't really fully developed that. Um, all of the current candidates at the time with Tucker Carlson um, and even Governor DeSantis, who wasn't yet declared, did send a response to Tucker Carlson about their position on Ukraine. But um, I think that we need to go a little further in uh, in depth with this. So Vivek uh, actually posted a really uh, lengthy Twitter thread, and I don't want to uh, just read this here um, because, or at least the entire thing, because, you know, you can go and read that for yourself. And um, if we do have him on the program, if we don't uh, get him today, we'll just uh, reschedule him for tomorrow and I'll ask him about Ukraine. But um, he basically said that the uh, almost the entire GOP field supports Biden's strategy of blind support to Ukraine. And he says that he disagrees with that and predicts that this will become the key distinguishing issue in our primary. And I think that that's really fascinating as well, because that assumes that a lot of the uh, GOP candidates either, I think, won't necessarily articulate a firm policy position, which I think they're going to have to. Uh, once they get into uh, the race. But then um, he thinks that 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 will be actually a distinguishing factor. And I would be somewhat surprised if uh, the the main contenders, which I think this is going to really come down to Trump versus DeSantis, uh, actually have a a varied or, or a position that will be largely distinguished. Now, if he's talking about the field as a whole, then a lot of these um, sort of Republican establishment uh, warmongers and the neocons that actually RFK Jr. was pushing back against his own party. But in the Republican Party, we have some of those as well. And so it's interesting how on you know this one topic, you actually can't divide where the presidential candidates stand by party as much as you divide uh, based on their kind of neocon warmongering status and you have you know the the 
Biden and you know some of the uh, the Republicans like um, you know Nikki Haley and um, and others that would be more in the um, pro-Ukraine camp um, unless she comes out and and suggests a different position. Um, and then you have RFK Jr. and um, some of the America First candidates uh, like Vivek, like President Trump, um, Governor DeSantis, kind of in that other camp. And so, you know, this is where, again, it's fascinating to me that we aren't really drawing um, lines on policy anymore um, based on just party partisan politics. And this has been a fracture of the Republican Party largely. And, and we talked about kind of in the uh, in the midterms about um, kind of this identity crisis within the Republican Party and are we uh, moving forward into more of the America First candidate side and true conservatism um, in that sense and what America First policy actually stands for? Or are we kind of um, rolling back into more of the um, establishment Republican view that is that is a lot more neocon and it's also a lot more uniparty? Um, but I think that the Democrat Party actually has that same problem, because especially when you're seeing the rise in the polls of even, um, you know, 20 percent of the uh, of the Republican or of the uh, the support for RFK Jr., rather, then that shows to me a fracture uh, within the Democrat Party and how there if um if they are actually having the same identity crisis. And, and I think that they are because a lot of the Democrats are really uh, not okay with this kind of extremist progressive view. And I think that a lot more Democrats, if they understood fully the issues and, you know, and, and, and I am suggesting there are a lot of low information Democrats, um, people who, um, and by that, I mean, people ju who just don't follow politics. They're not necessarily as well informed on all of the issues that Biden um, is advancing. They kind of latch onto one thing, like they're very excited that, you know, Biden is so uh, loving and pro pride, you know, and they kind of see all of these woke corporations and stuff and they, and they go, Oh, you know, yeah, this is great. And they don't really see everything else that Biden is doing, like uh, what Peter St. Ange was talking about in the last segment with all of these woke policies and how that's actually impacting inflation, the value of the dollar, you know, how are we um, supporting Ukraine? And, you know, I mean, I, I've even seen so many people who have the, in America, who have the Ukraine flag and, they have the Ukraine flag outside and I'm thinking, do they actually know what it is that they're supporting? And so if you have uh, Republicans and Democrats that don't fully understand exactly what the, the establishment part or in the, the Democrats lane, the extremist views um, of their party, then they tend to just go in and vote if they do at all. Um, they go in and they vote and they just vote for the party that they have always, um, they've just always supported. And, and so I think that RFK Jr. is, is kind of dispelling this notion and he is um, kind of trying to bring back his party uh, from this really super extremist view. And this is why the Democrats don't want debates. And and I think it would be totally fascinating if you got somebody uh, like Vivek, um, who I'm told uh, won't be joining us this morning, so we'll get him later. Um, and that's fine. And you know, he's always so gracious with his time to, to join us. 
Um, but I, I think that it would be fascinating to have somebody like him and RFK Jr., who uh, both are you know very well versed in um, a lot of these um, topics, especially the economy, um, you know, foreign policy, their views on Ukraine, actually sitting down and having a discussion. And um, and I'm told that you know potentially that may happen, whether that's on uh, Vivek's podcast, which um, if you want to hear more from him, uh, then definitely go and listen to his podcast episodes. And he's had some really great conversations. Um, and so that would be a, a really fascinating, that kind of discussion. Um, so I want to bring in now uh, my good friend, Mark Lauder, who um, is working for uh, the uh, America First policy. And um, he was, of course, one of my colleagues on the Trump 2020 campaign. Um, but also when we're talking about some of these candidates on the Republican side. Uh, Mark, I wanted to ask your perspective on uh, former Vice President Mike Pence jumping into the race, because we really haven't talked a lot about him. I think people are kind of just pushing this off as, you know, uh, you know, okay, Pence, maybe we'll get five, six percent of of the vote in the primary. But that actually may be significant. Um, You used to work for him in uh, the White House in in uh, the vice presidential office. So what's your take overall on why Pence is running in the primary? Well, Jenna, and thanks for having me. You know, I mean, I've known Mike Pence and his family for nearly 30 years, and I think this is something he feels called to do. And, you know, you you can't win if you don't at least put your name in the ring. And uh, I think, you know, he and and a lot of these candidates realize it's going to be an uphill climb, given where the polls are right now. But, you know, I go back to 1992 when, you know, all of the serious Democrats uh, in Washington, D.C. were taking a pass on running against George H.W. Bush. He just won the Gulf War. He was at 90 percent approval rating. And they all like, no, 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 no. I'll wait until 96 and take on Dan Quayle. And we had a mild recession. George H.W. ran a horrible campaign. Bill Clinton ran a brilliant campaign, and none of those serious Democrats ever got a shot again. And so there is something to be said to putting your name on the ballot and seeing where things go. Yeah, which which I think makes sense um, in terms of, you know, somebody like uh, Mike Pence, who clearly, while he was even in office as vice president, had aspirations uh, for the presidency. But, um, you know, but but realistically, you know, especially with the damage of the relationship between him and President Trump and just kind of how he's really, I, I think, disfavored among um, the average base of Americans who are um, paying attention to politics in any way. I mean, what is what kind of base is he really hoping to to target? Because even among um, evangelical Christians, which I think was the main reason that President Trump selected him, in uh, 2016 to be his running mate, um, a lot of people are pointing back to his record and kind of negative view of his record on religious freedom when he was governor of Indiana. So who is he really appealing to? Well, I think there's a there, you know, I think he's going to make he's going to try to make a strong case to the evangelical community, especially in Iowa, where he also shares, obviously, commonality, Midwest states, very agriculture, uh, you know, middle America kind of uh, of road. And then also try to find some sort of lane in the we love Trump policies, but we don't want everything else that goes with it. Now, there are a lot of people that are trying to fill that space right now. And so the question, if you are the vice president, if you are Tim Scott, if you're Nikki Haley, is 
can you carve out that niche and is it even big enough? And uh, the way the polls indicate right now, it's not. Right. And uh, and that's what's really interesting as well is that and I'm talking with Mark Lauder, who is the chief communications officer at the America First Policy Institute and um, and formerly worked for uh, Vice President Mike Pence and um, and also on the Trump 2020 campaign with me. So we've been good friends for a while. Um, but but Mark, I think that that a lot of people would see if there is a space for that, the presumptive space filler or would be Governor DeSantis. And so um, potentially, but you know, then there's people who, um, you know, like other people for other reasons. Um, but how does a Mike Pence jumping in if he gets, you know, maybe five or six percent overall of the primary? Um, how does this really affect um, the the primary overall for somebody like Governor DeSantis when the spread then wouldn't really take so much away from Trump? It would be a split between kind of everybody else. Well, and that's I mean, that's the way things are shaping up right now. And, you know, it, it, it's it's that's going to be that's going to be the challenge. You know, I, I said uh, I said it on another radio show this morning, you know, clearly. You know, Mike Pence, when he was doing his radio talk show host, compared himself to Rush Limbaugh on decaf. And I think when you look at the Republican primary voter right now, you know, the question is, is do they want Donald Trump on decaf or do they want MAGA in a big gulp? And so who can literally fill that space where, I, you know, maybe some of the things you didn't like about the former president, I don't offer those, but I'm still a fighter. And that's, I think, the key, one of the key aspects to this entire primary is I do think Republicans want someone who is going to fight on their issues, fight the woke left, fight the liberal media. They don't necessarily have to be angry about it. You can do it with optimism and hope. But how do you find that thin balancing line of I'm a fighter, but I'm not the same as the, the other guy, and I'm not milk toast to say, you know, when it comes to the issues you are passionate about? <laughs> oh, milk toast. But how are you spelling that, Mark? That's really the biggest question <laughs> when you use that word. Uh, that's so funny. But uh, and it, speaking, of course, of, you know, President Trump's truth social uh, spelling M-I-L-K toast. Uh, but uh, but but yeah, and I think, you know, you raise a great point and um, and we are almost out of time, Mark Lauder. But um, I also want to bring you back on at another point. I really appreciate you joining today about um, Chris Christie and how that may end up impacting the race. There are going to be so many different, um, I think, twists and turns as we see this primary continue. And um, and I think it'll be fascinating how how this shapes up, because in 2016, I mean, that's what Donald Trump did really well was to separate himself as the fighter and kind of everybody else just, uh, you know, went for it. And, and they ended up, you know, kind of um, they, they pushed everybody else out of the ring and Donald Trump was the only one left standing. So whether that happens again, we'll see. But uh, Mark Lauder, thanks so much. He's the chief communications officer at the America First Policy Institute. You can follow him at Mark underscore Lauder on Twitter. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And uh, we are talking about all things the woke agenda and Pride Month, unfortunately, and uh, the leftists and all of this and continuing to fight for conservative 
policies and correct policies. And this, of course, brings us to transgender sports. And the transgender sports rules are now being considered by a federal court of appeals. Um, Judges will hear argument on a Connecticut policy allowing transgender athletes or men uh, to compete in women's sports uh, in female categories. And joining me now to discuss this more is Jim Parkman, who is an attorney out of Alabama. And uh, Jim, good morning. And really appreciate you joining me on this because um, we've heard a lot on this program um, from uh, the attorney general out of West Virginia on uh, that case. And I think that there's a number of cases that are concerning all of these sports policies. There's been legislation passed. So um, where is this particular case out of Connecticut situated and what's the argument? Well, uh, by the way, good morning to you, Jenna. And, uh, you know, I think it, when you when you talk about this particular issue, uh, you're going to have to talk about uh, things dealing with discrimination versus the athletes themselves. So where we are right now is we are saying uh, basically Title IX, which has been in, in force for 50 years, 40 years, uh, says that each uh, school that receives public money, federal money, then they have a right uh, at that point in time, they have to have the situation where all athletes are considered equal and they have to provide equal uh, money for those particular athletes. So what's going on is, for example, in in transgender situations, uh, basically the argument on one side is, is, hey, uh, born a guy, now I'm a girl. And so if I'm a girl, then Title IX applies and I can obtain the same benefits that any other girl gets in any sport, including scholarships and other things. And you can't exclude me from that sport. Now, the Department of Education, the United States Department of Education is coming out with the rules shortly, too, it looks like. And they're going to say the same thing. And the only exemption that appears to be on the on the line in that particular instance with that ruling with with that um, kind of mandate is, well, a school can take into consideration uh, whether or not uh, someone could be injured or whether or not someone could be hurt by playing a particular sport. So, for example, if if you have a young lady who was a man originally and comes in and says, hey, I want to play football uh, at a a college and I want to play football at the University of Alabama, Probably what's going to happen in that particular instance is they're going to say, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, You're very small. You know, you're not tall. You don't weigh enough. You could be injured in that case. You know, we can prohibit you from doing that. On the other hand, though, for example, if if you're talking about any other sport, golf, uh, basketball, softball, whatever, and it and it reply and you know and it applies both ways. It applies to whether it's a woman now who who is transgender and says I, I'm a man now. I want to play a man sport. I think the only thing that they're looking at in federal law is whether or not uh, that could lead to some type of injury and whether or not a school could ban you from from playing in that particular sport. So where and are I- we in all of this? Yeah, go ahead, Jenna. Right, right. So yeah, that was literally going to be my next question. You're you're a great attorney because you always that uh, you anticipate the next question. So yes, yeah, so where are we at in all of this? 
well, where we are, uh, and, and I'm just going to say it real simple, okay? Where we are is a mess. That's where we are. How they are going to do this, I don't know. Uh, are they going to just, you know, flat out come out and say, look, if you're uh, identified to yourself as a woman or a man, then I can play men's sports or I can play women's sports. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to have conditions into this? And right now, looking at the way the country has been in the last 50 years, you know, discrimination uh, doesn't have too many uh, options to where it leaves uh, outs for people. So I'm concerned that what's going to be is going to be, look, if you identify yourself as a woman, you identify yourself, man, if you want to go play a woman or men's sports, you're going to have to be allowed to, or you're going to have to be allowed to try out. And of course, that's well, that'll just be the end itself. of women's sports. It could. I mean, be that well. that will just be the, yeah. I mean, it, that would just it be the could. end of women's sports. And yeah. and I'm speaking with yeah. uh, Jim Parkman, who's an attorney yeah. out of Alabama, and. You know, and, and Jim, this this is so um, frustrating, I think, for people who understand reality and just say, OK, well, it doesn't matter whether a man identifies as a woman or, you know, thinks he's a frog or what, you know, whatever else. We can't arbitrate no. our own reality. And so it, it, it seems like this should be so very simple. But as you, huh. I, I think, brilliantly suggested, um, we are in a mess because um, the Supreme Court as well, even in a conservative majority um, with the Bostock opinion, has now said that, you know, that sexual orientation, gender identity is protected, at least in terms of, you know, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I mean, and obviously we're dealing um, with a different uh, issue here with Title VII. But at the same time, if this is protected under this notion of sex, then, you know, what, what, how do you see the Supreme Court dealing potentially with that previous ruling? Or can they basically just set that aside and say, now we're dealing with something in the context of women's sports? Yeah, let, let me, you know, that is a great question. And, and let me say this, if, if you look back at the, uh, and, and, and the abortion issue, and what they did with that, they come back and they say, okay, we're going to leave it up to the states in order to make that decision. Now, follow me just a minute. If that's where they are headed with law today, then if they come out with a ruling and say, okay, well, with regards to playing sports, we're just going to leave it up to the state. Well, there are already some states that have banned, uh, you know, this type of con you know, this type of uh, of issue where uh, a, a woman who's a man wants to play men's or whatever. Now, with that in mind, if you leave it up to the states, the problem's going to be in sports today. Teams travel all over the place, so if a team from state A goes to state B that bans it, then what are you going to do? Are you going to say that person can't play now? And that's discrimination. So somewhere along the line, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to be able to duck this issue by simply passing this off to the states. I think it's going to yeah. all come to some decision somewhere, sometime. 
Wow. And, and I'm seeing Jim Parkman, who's an attorney uh, from Alabama on the, the women's sports issue. And and I agree with you. I mean, that would would be a very complicated solution and not really a solution to oh, just say, yeah. well, the states can decide. I mean, this would be like suggesting that all of the different countries that participate in the Olympics can all have different rules for you know, who who participates in the same event. And if you have, you know, one country that bans transgender athletes and the other country that says that that's fine, then when you go and you you compete in the same event in the Olympics, well, there has to be one designated entity that sets the rules. I mean, it's it's common sense. And so, you know, that type of um, divide just, just seems really impractical and implausible as a solution. And hopefully the Supreme Court uh, doesn't duck something like this and will actually look at um, the harm associated. And, you know, Jim, it's also been suggested that, you know, why why shouldn't transgender athletes just then have their own separate category and have scholarships, you know, funded to a, a transgender category? Um, do you think that that's something that is possible for states to contemplate as, as really a way of just dealing with this? I mean, almost like how they dealt in some instances with the bathroom issues where they just said, okay, fine, we'll just, you know, make it a single stall, you know, unisex or, you know, multi-sex, whatever. And we just won't deal with actually um, categorizing people based on, based on sex or their identified sex, but now they would have to have a separate transgender category. Well, let me tell you something. Great question. Let me throw something back at you. And let me give you three words that bother me with what you're saying, okay? And that would be separate but equal. We went mm-hmm. through that process back in the 50s, 1950s, separate but equal, and it didn't work. Uh, I don't know if that would be a solution for the Supreme Court or not because we've been there, and we have ruled that separate but equal is not legal. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, yeah. you're you the constitutional whiz. Now, let me tell you something. You are a constitutional whiz. So <laughs> Thank if, you. you're giving it, if you've given it any thought about that particular provision, I know what you're saying, and I like it. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, will that separate but equal situation come about? And and I think that is a, a really great question. And just from a practical standpoint, I mean, my, my opinion on uh, creating kind of this third category um, won't yeah. satisfy the the male athletes that want to participate in women's sports. And especially with the LGBT agenda overall, I, I think that their intent to absolutely blur the lines and blow up the lines between uh, the the two sexes and how they're trying to create vagueness surrounding this term sex, they're not going to be happy with a clearly defined third category no. anyway. And so I think they will find ways to uh, to litigate that. And whether it's on the basis of separate but equal, or it's on the basis of saying, well, you know, this isn't this isn't funded. I mean, if we've seen all of the uh, the lawsuits surrounding, you know, women saying they're not paid as much as, you know, men in professional sports. Well, who wants to want to watch, you know, a transgender category, right? So I, I can envision, you know, all of these uh, things coming up. And, and really, I hope, though, Jim, that we have a Supreme Court that is willing to look at the best interests of our female athletes 
and uh, and not have something you know based on weight class because that doesn't work for some of these other sports that are team sports, um, you know, like volleyball right. or swimming or whatever. Um, but really, just do this on the basis of of genuine reality. Um, but yeah. uh, but let, but we'll it, see. And so, go ahead. Yeah. Let me let me throw this out that that I think is interesting. You know, we're in and have been since the '90s into an era where performance enhancing drugs are outlawed. They're banned. You can't use them. Well, I think if, if anybody disagrees with me, I'd like to hear this. But I think the men's body, as far as its muscular muscular structure versus a woman's body, is completely different. So, to me, if you take a man and he wants to be a transgender into a woman and then go play a woman's sport. What you're actually looking at is the same theory as performance enhancing drugs because you're putting mm-hmm. a man in a woman name playing against other women and they are, you know, it's it's to me unfair in that particular yeah. aspect. I, I fully agree with that. And um, I've been speaking with Jim Parkman, and you can find him at jimparkmanlaw.com. And uh, Jim, really great comments uh, today. And, you know, this is going to be an ongoing issue. And um, and I absolutely agree. And there's, you know, other attorney friends of mine that have suggested the same in terms of these performance-enhancing drugs and some of the rules already around sports. Um, we'll continue to talk about this more. You can reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. Make it a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.